Good afternoon, church. Amen. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, as you can see on the screen, we're going to be dealing with verses 9 to 10. It sure is a blessing to worship with you. I, I really thoroughly enjoy coming here, singing with you, and worshiping our great God. I've enjoyed going through the book of 1 Peter with you, and, and we've been working through exactly what Peter means when he tells us that we are the church. Who is the church? What exactly are we? And what we're going to find in this passage is that Peter tells us who we are as the church. There's not a lot of things that social media has given that's really a big positive and blessing in the world. Except one of those things is this. Sometimes I'll go online and I'll look up where people, whether in tweet lists or elsewhere online, talk about movies, and then they describe them in different ways than the person who made the movie might describe them. And sometimes they're rather humorous descriptions. Nevertheless, they're true to it, but probably wouldn't be the way that somebody who made the movie would describe it. For instance, tell me if you know what movie this is speaking of. This is a movie about a toy cowboy who tries to murder an astronaut for the love and attention of a child. Yeah, that, that's Toy Story, right? Or how about this? A group spends nine hours returning jewelry. Lord of the Rings. All right, so the rings, and they spend nine whole hours. My family's actually working through watching some of those now. Perhaps my favorite one of this whole category is this one. Uh, this person is transported to a surreal landscape. Or there, there, there's a transportation to a surreal landscape. A young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. This is the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> right? So a little bit of a different description than perhaps somebody else would give of what exactly those books are or those movies are about. What would the world say about the church if it defined what the, what the church is? I dare say that their definition of the church would probably not be a great one. But I might say as well that if we try to define what the church is, our description might not actually be as good a description as Scripture itself provides. Sometimes one of the things we need to do in order to ground ourselves, to remember who we are, to establish and to think about what you are doing here in Belleville as Redemption Bible Church is to look back at Scripture and say, God, remind us who we are. And today, in God's good providence, he's given to us that reminder. And he tells us this. We're going to read verses 9 and 10, and then we'll walk through the descriptions that Peter gives of, of the church. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think Peter tells us 
at least five things. It depends on how you enumerate them, but at least five things about who we as a church are. Who exactly are we? And the first thing he starts with is this phrase that we are, there we go, a chosen race. Uh, In the ESV here, we have a chosen race. Your translation may look a little different. It may say something like, you are an elect people. Because the language here, chosen, is the word for elect. If we go back to the beginning of the, of the book, if you remember 1 Peter, describes the readers as chosen, as elect, as selected from among all of humanity, God has bestowed his favor upon these people, Peter's readers. But of course, Peter's readers were a part of the church. And now he's writing to us and saying, you too are a chosen and elect a selected from among all humanity. And yet, that second phrase is the interesting one to me. You are not only chosen, but you are a chosen race. You'll notice that on the screen here, I have a picture of a family tree. Many of us are quite aware of our own family tree. It's been a fun thing, hasn't it, in the last number of uh, decades to be able to take various tests and find out, uh, you know, hey, look, I'm however much Irish, however much I, you know, and and you figure out a little bit more of your family tree. I've got an aunt who's spent a lot of time trying to trace back, uh, you know, our family tree, probably trying to find somebody famous in there. I haven't quite hit it yet, but eventually you're going to find somebody, right? Everybody's related to everybody. The word Peter chose here to refer to us is the language of literally a people group. And nationality. And just think with me for a moment of what then that means, as Peter tells us, as a church, that we are a new race. I think this brings a couple of challenges that we're going to have to face in just a moment. Before we look at those challenges, though, I want you to know that every time Peter tells us we are something in this passage, all five times, he's quoting the Old Testament. Now, I wish I had time to dig into all of the context of the Old Testament to give us the full context there, but we're going to have to just skim and understand broadly what he's saying. Now, I think Isaiah 43 provides the contours of the outside of these descriptions. It's the first and the last description. And then we're going to find he's going to be quoting another passage, Exodus, to refer to the the middle section. But in Isaiah 43, this is what God says. If we were to look at Isaiah 43, 1 to 4, you'd note that this is actually written directly to Israel. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But he says this, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And then notice this next phrase, because this is where Peter's getting this language. It's a direct quotation. To give drink to my people, my chosen, that is my elect. And then notice the next phrase. The people I formed for myself, that is the people I gathered for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Do you remember Peter has just said, 
in the passage we just read. Two things about us. We are chosen race, a chosen people. Notice he says, my people, my chosen, the chosen people. That's where Peter's getting this. And then he says a little bit later in 1 Peter that we are to give him praise for what he's done. So Peter indicates that we are actually a race of people. We obviously live in a time that focuses a lot on race, representation, those sorts of things, where uh, we, we want in, in all of the movies we watch and all these other things to have every race represented. And I think that, that there's something to that. There's, there's uh, something deep down that makes us recognize that there's something valuable that can be provided in that. Isaiah here is indicating that we, that, that Israel was God's people they were an elect race. And that's easy to think about because, of course, they have a solitary ancestor, don't they? They go back to Abraham, and they can trace that lineage. And so if you said to, said to the Jews, well, you are a special chosen nation or a, an elect people group, you know what they'd say? Of course we are. We all come from the same ancestor. But there's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because we don't all at least physically, come from the same ancestors. The Jews thought of the, the world in really two categories. You had the Jews and then the peoples of this world. Now, they were congregated of all different types of people. You had the Philistines, you had the Assyrians, you had all kinds of peoples, but they were non-Jews. The scriptures, though, now provide for us a group that is distinct, both from Jews and from the rest of the nations no longer associated simply with a physical progeny or some father figure, but really associated with Jesus. So let's consider the two problems or the two challenges. The first one concerns what Peter means by this new race. I think he's getting this idea from this point. Do you remember what he told us in 1.3? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his rich mercy, he caused us to be born again. I don't think you can overemphasize the significance of the new birth in Peter's ideology or his thought process. For Peter, the new birth gave us a new family. For Peter, the new birth put us into a new race of people. And of course, this change is what's caused us our problems, isn't it? Because to the degree that we've been transformed by the Spirit of God, to be this new people is the degree to which we are facing challenges and pressures in this world. Peter's readers, here was their issue. They used to do the things, and in fact, we're going to get to this in chapter 4, but it says the time past is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles want to do the things in which you used to do, but of which you are now ashamed. You don't live like that anymore. And what's the result of that? Peter says, and so they mock you. They abuse you. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I think the reason for that is because to the degree that we as believers stand up for truth, we're reminding people of things that they don't want to remember. Nevertheless, we are distinct. Our embrace of Christ has fundamentally changed us, has made us a new nation. In fact, that's going to be the language Peter's going to use in just a few moments. 
and we'll have to think about that. I would note one thing before I move on from this point, though. That Christianity provides for us a new way to think about people groups. I think provides for us the ultimate answer to racism. The ultimate answer to the challenges our world sees developing. Because here's the beauty of the, of the Christian church. At least as it should be. Not always as it is, but as it should be. Think about how the various races come together at the throne room of God. Here's what Revelation 7, 9 says. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Do you see this nation in which we find ourselves is not one in which all of the distinctives that we had are washed away. It's not a melting pot such that we all become exactly like one another. It is a grouping together in which all of our strengths and glories come together so that we might praise the Lord together in unison. I really do believe that the church of God has the answer to racism and it is unity in Christ. And when we see him in our brothers and sisters, then whatever differences that exist fade away. And I don't know if you've ever spent time in another, uh, another place, uh, even in another place where people don't speak your language. The Lord's given me opportunity to go, through, go to a number of countries. I'm just thinking right now of my time in China, and I'm standing with people who can't speak English, and I can't speak Chinese. And yet we're singing, and I have way more in common with this person standing next to me, who I can't talk to at all. I have way more in common with them than with most of the people I know back in the United States of America. Because there's a unifying factor, and Christ is him. He is our head. So we are, in fact, a new race. This leads to a second challenge, though, because... The question we have to ask is, well, then what about Israel? Because the, the real challenge that this passage poses has to do with Israel as a nation because every passage or every statement that Peter makes, he calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession, a people who have now received mercy. Every one of those passages was originally stated to Israel. So what do we do with that? Have we replaced Israel? Well, that's one option. There are three options that have historically been given in the church in answer to the question, what do we do with the fact that Peter, <laughs> five times here, talks about passages that originally referred to Israel undoubtedly, no doubt. And then he says, and this is you. So what do we do with those? Well, there are three options. The first is to simply say, well, the church replaces Israel. I can't accept this, and there's a primary reason for that. Because God, if we were to walk through the Old Testament, what you'd find is promise after promise in which God said to people that you as Jewish people, sons of Abraham, not merely sons of Abraham by faith, but sons of Abraham by lineage, you will receive a future kingdom. And if, in fact, at some later point, 
they do not receive it, but somebody else receives it, then this seems to me to be dishonesty with God. Just imagine with me for a moment that I said to you that I wanted to give you $1,000, and I'll give it to you next week. And then next week comes along, and I give it to somebody else. And I say, isn't that wonderful? Or let's say your name is Susan. And, uh, and I say, Susan, I want to give you $1,000 next week. And we come to next week. And then I go to Pastor Garrett and I say, here you go, Susan. I've renamed you Susan. Now, Pastor Garrett may accept the name Susan so that he could get the $1,000. I'm guessing he wouldn't. But you, what would you all say of me? Now, wait a second. You promised that to Susan. You can't just change somebody else's name. And this is, in essence, what happens if we're just simply saying, look, he promised it Israel, but we're now Israel, and so we can get it all. Well, what about all those promises that certainly weren't understood in that way? I'm just not sure that we can do this with an honesty. There are some, and this is a much better, much better position, there are some who say, well, what's happening in all those passages is that God is saying, that I'm going to give it to the people of Israel, but the people of Israel is really encapsulated in Jesus himself. He's the ultimate Israelite. So he's going to receive all the promises. And what we, the church, are is included in Christ. And therefore, we're included in Israel because we're included in Christ. My problem or challenge with this is Simply that it's really a sophisticated way of saying the first point, in my estimation. So then what other option do we have when we come to a passage like this? And I think this is what it is. The church is analogous, or it's very similar to the Old Testament people of God. And I think this is what Peter's doing. He's saying, you remember all those incredible things God said to Israel in the Old Testament? Did you know all of those incredible promises are already right now beginning to unfold for the people of God in this generation. And here's what Paul would tell us in Romans 9 to 11. And if they're already beginning to unfold for you, a people for whom they were never promised, don't you know that they're going to be given to the people to whom they were originally promised? And I think what Paul tells us in Romans 9 to 11 is this. Why is it that the Gentiles, which would include most of us, if not all of us, why is it that the Gentiles are receiving the promises that originally were given to Israel? And I think the answer Paul gives us is this, so that the Israelites would see the blessing that was promised to them poured out on another people, and they would be led to jealousy. And that this jealousy would be the very means by which they would then be drawn by God at some point in the future, whenever he desires, to call Israel back to himself. So stepping back, we need to admit that all the passages we're referring to today were originally given to Israel. I don't think the reason that they're now spoken to the church is because God is done with Israel. It's clear, Romans 9 to 11, he's not. Uh, in fact, just think of the very last question that the disciples asked Jesus right before he left. In Acts chapter 1, they said this, Jesus, are you now going to return the, the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, well, you've totally misunderstood it. You are the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. And so, yeah, here you go. 
Instead, you know what he says? It's not mine to give the times and the seasons right now. But there's coming a day when the kingdom will be given back to Israel. So we live in a time period in which the blessings that were originally promised to Israel are beginning to flow out to us. And what Paul says in Romans 11 is thank the Lord for that. Rejoice in his blessing and the glory that he gives to us through this. So the first thing that Peter tells us is that we are a nation or a elect nation. Or you could put an elect people. We are a distinct people group called out from the nations by God to be chosen by him. But there's a second thing, and this may be a little darker than I intended, but it says you are a royal priesthood. Now, if you remember, a little bit earlier we talked in chapter 2, verse 5, about the fact that we are all being built up into this church in which we are stones And yet we are also priests within that. The language here indicates to us that we are either, and you'll notice this on the next slide, we are either a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. There's debate on how to translate this passage. Are we a kingdom and priests? So that is, the church itself is a kingdom, And we are priests within that kingdom. Or are we royal priests? And you know, it's one of those distinctions that I kind of enjoy because I'm not sure the difference is all that grand. Because in both, this is what Peter's indicating. You are a part of a kingdom. And you are a priest within that kingdom. Are we royalty? I actually think the text tells us that. We are, in fact, royalty, uh, meaning that we are related to the king. We are sons of the king. Does that not make you royalty? Indeed, it does. So we are royal priests or a kingdom, and priests both are reflected. Well, this, again, comes back to the Old Testament. Exodus 19. Again, this was originally given to Israel, now being applied to the church because an analogous people of God. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, and I love this phrase, my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. Notice this, what he's saying is, everything's mine. I own it all, but you're my treasured possession. We'll come back to that. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, this is the reason why most people think, or not most people, a number of people think, that the way to translate this would be kingdom of priests, because the Old Testament passage certainly says it that way. Uh, The the other reason to think of it it as royal priesthood is because all three adjectives that he gives, uh, they precede the noun. And so most English translations actually take it the other way. Nevertheless, here's what he said. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. What exactly does it mean that we are king in the kingdom and priests? Well, again, boy, Peter just wants to get us into some controversy today. What does it mean that we're in the kingdom? Well, of course, as we look around, this doesn't look like the kingdom we were promised, does it? 
A lot of people tend to think, or historically in the Christian church, that really what we are in the midst of right now is the kingdom of God. My problem with that is it doesn't look like the passages that describe what the kingdom of God is going to look like. I don't think we're in the kingdom of God. But here's what I think Scripture teaches. Paul puts it this way. You, as a church member, have been translated, or that is transferred, into the kingdom of his dear son. So Paul thinks that you are in the kingdom. Except that, here's what Paul would say, at least I'm convinced Paul would say, you are in the midst of a kingdom, yet your king is not present. You're a part of a holy nation in which that king has all power in the heavens and the earth, and yet he has not taken his throne yet. And so, you serve a king, and you must serve him as king, even in the nations among whom you, whom you are around. Peter's elsewhere going to tell us in just this ne- in, in, in later in this chapter, he's going to say, hey, listen, you need to obey the authorities that are above you right now. Yeah, you've got a king in heaven, but the king in heaven is telling you to obey whatever king you have now until the time in which he comes and supplants those kingdoms and his kingdom is established on this earth. I think a few weeks ago, I may have mentioned this, but I think, I think probably the best way of thinking about the church is that we are outposts of the kingdom. Outposts of the kingdom. We are microcosms of the kingdom. It, within this assembly ought to be evidences of what the kingdom is going to look like. And oh, we all fall short, don't we? Nevertheless, I think we've all seen glimpses of it. Among God's people and among God's saints, we've seen what that kingdom is going to be like. And this is what he's saying. We are a kingdom. And within this kingdom, we are priests. Well, this is an interesting phrase, isn't it? And I think to understand what he means by this is to recognize that in the Old Testament, God actually called all of Israel to be priests. All of them. That's not how we normally think about it. We normally think about just the Levitical priests, don't we? We think, okay, well, then there were, there were regular Israelites, and then there were the Levitical priests. But actually, here's what God did. He said, all of you are going to be my priests. And then some of you will be the priests of the priests. And then one of you will be the priest of the priests of the priests. <laughs> So there's no challenge between having distinctive roles as priests specific and the broad priesthood. What then does it mean to be a priest? One of the interesting things to realize is that, did you know Adam was a priest in the Garden of Eden? Uh, We know this because the language that he's given, that you are to tend and to cultivate the garden, are the exact same words used in the book of Leviticus to refer to the priestly duties. Adam was a priest of God, but he failed. He fell, and he lost some of those privileges. Revelation, however, indicates this about us. And I think I'm a little bit behind. Revelation says this in Revelation 5, 9 to 10, speaking to Jesus Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, notice this, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, 
So you see, he's taken them out of those nations and he's made them his people and you have made them what? A kingdom and priests to our God. I. Howard Marshall says this, our popular idea of a priest is a person with the right to offer sacrifice on behalf of others. And that is true sometimes in the Old Testament. But he says this, and I want you to catch it. The basic meaning in the Bible of a priest is a person who serves God and has access to him. One who serves God and has access to him. A little bit later, Peter's going to say this, Jesus suffered to bring us to God. That is to give us access into God's presence, to make us priests. So then what do we do in our priesthood? You know what we are to do as priests? We are to represent to a lost and dying world what our heavenly father is like. In fact, the, a passage in Deuteronomy uh, talks about this. And by the way, I, I, this is what I was arguing. There's corporate, there's individual priests, but notice what he says in Deuteronomy 4. Surely I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. And this is, this is Moses saying to the people who are about to go into the land. Here's why I told you these things. That you should act to them in the land which you go to possess. That you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Catch that in the sight of the peoples, who will hear of all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God has so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. I think ultimately this is what Peter wants you to understand about the church. Why does he say you are a distinct People. Why does he say you are a holy nation? Why does he say you are a holy priesthood? Because he wants you to recognize something. God has called you out of the world. He has made you distinct. And he's done it so that you would represent him to the world. You see, here Israel was to live in the midst of the other nations. They were to drive them out and win some of those nations around them. Remember the Queen of Sheba, here's the wisdom of Solomon. This was to be the way in which God's name got out because he could bless the people of Israel and all the nations around would say there's something different about Israel. Their God is different than our God. They're a distinct people. And here's what Peter is saying about the church. We're no longer doing that as a distinct nation. We don't have our own, uh, our own nation in the sense that we've got uh, a the theocracy, Instead, now we are called to be in the midst of every one of the nations with God, our King, Jesus, his son, sitting upon the throne, and we are to pay him obedience. And we are to live in the midst of every one of the nations, making every other people group who surround us say, there's something different, attractive, and beautiful about those people. Unfortunately, we can't preach all of 1 Peter today, but I am absolutely convinced that's true because one of the things Peter's going to do in the very next passage is say this. So friends, as strangers and pilgrims, live honorably among the Gentiles. 
showing, showing them who Christ is so that when they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you, friend, have this wonderful opportunity as priests of God. And the third thing he tells us, you are a holy nation. Holiness is uh, the description. I think the, the idea of being a nation is very similar to being a people. And he's not saying much more other than this, that you are not only a nation, but you are a called out nation. You are a distinctive nation. You are a holy nation. You are a nation of saints. You are a nation of saints. And so because we have been washed by the blood of Christ, because we've been cleansed by him, we are a pure nation. This obviously then means we are dual citizens in the nation in which we presently live, aren't we? We are coming up to a voting season. And as we think about that voting season, we think about what God calls us to be as dual citizens of a nation. My ultimate standard of living is not the United States of America. I love this nation. I really do. And I would fight for it if I had to. I would. But I'm a member of a greater nation. A holy nation. One that means more than this nation. And to the degree, by the way, and this is what Peter's going to tell us, the degree to which we are dedicated to God's nation is the degree to which we also should be dedicated to the health of the nation in which we presently live. Do you remember what he says? To the, to, 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 that God says to Jeremiah when the people are going into captivity, the people had just been conquered by the Babylonians. And what does Jeremiah say to these people when they go there. He says, work hard for the nation in which you've just been taken and do good for the city. Oh, man. And so here we are in the midst of a nation in which God has placed us. We should always remember that our first citizenship is in heaven. But that citizenship then calls us to be a good citizen of this nation. And we'll talk more about that as we get to that passage in 1 Peter. So we're a holy nation. Again, that comes directly from Exodus 19. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The final thing here, the final of the first four, he says, you are a treasured possession. And again, this comes straight from Exodus 19, 5 to 6. This is the passage we mentioned just a moment ago, my favorite element of this passage. God says, literally, everything in the world is mine. Everything. But you, and I want you to take that personally, by the way, today. He's talking to you. You are my special possession. I have called you by name. I've set you aside for my glory and for your good. We are a treasured people, treasured possession. The final two things that Peter tells us here, and, and you'll notice I skipped a passage. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But notice with me in chapter, uh, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. He says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He does this, this doublet, this couplet here. 
in which he says, once you did not, but now you have. Once you did not, but now you have. And the first is, once you were not a people. And I think what he's saying is, once all of us here in this group had literally nothing in common. Right? But now, we are a people. And again, this goes back to the idea that despite the fact that I might be from a certain area, I might be from a certain nation, I might speak the same language, our commonality with the brothers and sisters in Christ is so far greater than our commonality of any other nation. We are now not only a people, but we are God's people. Second, you are a receiver of mercy. That's what he says. At one time you didn't receive mercy, but now you have. What does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about the fact that at one time, as Gentiles, you were outside the covenants and blessings of God's people. You had no access to these things. But now, because of the graciousness of God and the work of Christ, the doors have been flung wide open, and you, as Gentiles, are welcomed into his presence. What a glorious truth. And this all comes, by the way, from Hosea chapter 2. He says, I will plant her for myself in the land. Now, again, this was originally to Israel, being used analogously for the church. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. By the way, in the New Testament, that's translated mercy instead of love, but it's the same idea. So the ones I said I have not showed mercy or I have not loved, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And praise be to the Lord that we today have said, you are our God, because he first said, you are our people, are my people. So what do we learn from this passage then? What, what do we learn when we step back and we say, all right, Peter, you tell us here that we are an elect nation. Well, that's interesting. You tell us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for a special possession. We're a people who once were not, but now we're God's people. We were a people who once were not receivers of mercy, but now we've received mercy. Why do you tell us this, Peter? And here are a couple of application points. First, do not forget who you are individually. Just pull out the descriptions God gives of us here. And here's what he says to you. You are chosen, royal, holy, and precious to him. You know, I hear a lot these days about the fact that we need more self-esteem. We really need to think more of ourselves. And I can't think of anything that would increase my recognition of the goodness that God has given to me. Notice I didn't, I didn't make this, but God has given to me. Then to say, God, I thank you that you chose me. I thank you that by choosing me, you brought me into the royal family. I thank you that you, through the process of your Holy Spirit working in my heart, have made me holy. And I thank you that though it was not due to what I have done, you call me precious, your possession. So don't forget who you are individually. And the moments you think so poorly of yourself, come back and say, that's not true. This is what God says of me. 
Second, don't forget who you are, not just individually, but corporately. God says you are a new race. You are a holy nation. We can get so caught up in the things of this life. I mean, here we are just about to have the election. Maybe you didn't know that, but, it, but it's coming up this week. I think maybe you probably did. And as we think of what we are called to do, and as we think of politics and these sorts of things, we can never forget that we cannot place our hope in the United States of America. You're not hearing me lambast this nation or the leaders of this nation or anything like that. I'm simply saying this, our hope is not this nation. Our hope is greater than this nation. Our hope rests in Christ. And we can thank the Lord for that. And you know, if the Lord tarries, the United States of America will not be here one day. But there are going to be pockets of God's people everywhere. This nation, the nation that will change all nations, the nation that's founded upon the rock that God has promised one day will come from the sky and depossess all the nations of this earth and create a new one. That gets me excited. Because, man, can't you get depressed when you think about our nation, when you think about everything that's happening and you think, boy, God, do you, what's happening here? And what we need to say is, all right, well, that's all happening and, and I should be concerned about that. But my first primary concern is what's the health of this nation, this holy nation that God's called me to be a part of? So we are a new race. We are a holy nation. Never forget who we are corporately. The third thing don't forget why you're here. Don't forget why you're here. There's a passage I, I skipped, but is the very heart of this passage. It's, it's the very heart of what he's saying and why he tells us we are these five things. Notice this in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Notice the purpose phrase. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, one of the things I remember distinctly as a child was going to this cave in Tennessee. They took us way deep down into the cave, and then all the people who had the flashlights turned them off. Anybody gone through something like that? You've been, okay, so I'm, I'm not the only one. And isn't that the darkest darkness you've ever faced? <laughs> You're down there and it's just, it's complete blindness. And, you know, as a nine-year-old boy, uh, 0.2 seconds of that darkness was sufficient for me. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm hugging my mom or whatever the case is. I remember the, that moment, though, in which they turned the light back on. And the gloriousness of that light. And that's what Peter's getting at here. In fact, he's reflecting the language of creation. Because the, the language of creation says that God spoke and light came. And here's what he's done for us. Here's what made us the distinct nation that called us from the nations. In his mercy, in his kindness, he gave us his divine light. So what are we going to do with that? 
you know it's because he did that that you can glory and bask in all of the adjectives he described for us. We are chosen, royal, holy, precious. Why is all of that? Because God's work and bringing us to that light and turning it on for us so that we could enjoy this. So then what do we do with that incredible blessing? Here's what he says. Here's why I've called you out for my name. Here's why I've set you aside. Here's why you are a distinct holy nation for me. So that you can do your priestly duty. That is, you can live faithfully to me in the midst of a generation of people who don't. So that they might look at your acts and say there's something different about this person. There's something different about Redemption Bible Church. And we say, you're right, there is. Do you know what's different? God one day turned the light on for me. And I want God to turn the light on for you. Do you see, notice what instigated Peter to even say all of these things. Do you remember last or two weeks ago when we talked about the stone? God has established a stone upon which he is establishing a whole new world. And how we relate to that stone determines what happens in the future. And today, maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. And you can't claim these great adjectives God has said. That you are chosen. That you are holy, that you have experienced the light coming on. Maybe that's not been a description of you. And yet, here's what he says. I have established the stone. He's coming to establish a whole new world. And your decision today is this. Do you believe in him or do you not? If you believe in him, you can join the rest of us. The door is wide open. He welcomes you. But friend, if you don't, Notice that's what he just said in 2.9. He said, there are some who stumbled over the rock of offense. They stumbled to their own detriment and to their own destruction, but you. And here you face a choice. Will you submit and bend the knee to this rock and build your life upon him? Or will you be crushed by this stone? And for the rest of us, he gives to us a calling. He says, I've made you these glorious things. Isn't it wonderful that he's done this for us? Yes, it is. He has turned on the light of his presence and his glory. So, how have you, in this last week, proclaimed his praises? How will you, this week, proclaim his praises? The one who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Could I ask you this week? Proclaim his praises to someone you haven't. That's why he's put you here. That's why he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that you could shed that light to someone else. So that they too could one day sit here with us and celebrate these glorious affirmations of who we've become in Christ. Father, I thank you for these saints who sit before me. I thank you for these wonderful descriptions of who we have become in Christ. You have been good to us, not because of all of our righteousness and goodness, but because of your righteousness and goodness. Father, I pray for those who sit in here, maybe someone today who does not know you and they cannot claim these great promises. Oh, Father, 
help them to see that these are theirs for the taking if they would merely bend the knee. And for those of us who do know you, who love you because you have light enlightened our minds to know the glory of your presence, I pray that we this week would make your glory known to the nations around us. In Jesus' name, amen.